Now let's uh, turn again then to the prophecy of Joel and uh, chapter 2. Page 1052, Joel chapter 2 and at verse 11, where the invasion of the locusts is described as the army of God. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. The Lord gives voice before his army. Now we're returning really to where we left off this morning and I'm conscious of course that a lot of what I said was uh, really left unfinished and to understand it properly uh, we need to pay attention to what the Lord has to say to us tonight as well. We are of course looking at this uh, army of locusts which the Lord unleashed against the nation of Judah. And uh, for good reason, we're comparing that with the virus which the Lord has seen fit to unleash in this particular year on this nation and on many other nations too. And uh, we're really asking the question whether these invasions are ordinary providences with just general spiritual lessons, or are they extraordinary providences? In other words, has God sent them in a special way for special reasons to teach us particular lessons to do with our sinful behavior? In other words, are they chastisements or judgments upon the land and upon the church? Now, I hope we saw in the morning, what I suppose we should really know anyway, that God has always used providence to chastise sin. He has done that in the lives of individuals, and if we are honest, we know that ourselves. And he's used providence to chastise sin in nations too. He deals with nations as nations. Um, having respect to who the rulers are, as well as what the people themselves are like. Now, the real question, I suppose, that comes to us is, is how can we tell whether this particular affliction is genuinely an extraordinary providence? How can we tell that God has sent it in connection with the sin of this nation, or indeed the sins of of other nations. How can we tell it when God has not explicitly told us so in the Bible? Now, as I mentioned in the morning, the reason that I'm addressing this question at all, and maybe you wonder about that because you, you might think that it's perfectly obvious that, that this is a judgment from God. Well, if so, well and good, because I'm quite surprised at the number of people in churches generally, including many, many ministers, who believe that this is not a judgment from God. And as I mentioned in the morning, the text that they seem to quote all the time is the one about the Tower of Siloam falling on 18 people and uh, Pilate killing some of the Galileans who were present 
at a, a service in Jerusalem. And from that they argue that you should never, you should never draw a straight line between a disaster on a people or an individual and sin in their lives. And I hope we saw enough reasons to understand why that isn't, that, that isn't the last word in the Bible on that matter at all. Um, God does very much. Although these things are true, we have to be careful. Nonetheless, God does chastise individuals by things that he does, and he chastises nations too by things that he does. Now, tonight what I want to focus on is this, that the, and I touched on it at the end this morning, that the Bible tells us that really we should be knowing what God is doing in the various times and seasons he appoints in life. There are times and seasons in an individual's life, times and seasons in a nation's life, times and seasons indeed in world history. And the Bible, I think, as we'll see, is very clear that if we search and if we ask God in prayer, we can understand these times and seasons so that we can tell if he is chastising us in providence, if he is chastising the church and indeed chastising a nation. Now again, as I said in the morning, times and seasons, by times or seasons, what the Bible means is just a, a period of time that is characterized by people living in a certain way or God acting in a certain way. Our duty is to recognize these things and to respond to them. Uh, let me take an example. I took a very general one in the morning. Let me take a more specific one and uh, move more specific still. Uh, Paul speaks of perilous times. Uh, the Greek word is either times or seasons. He says that in the last days, which is the days that we are living in, he says that perilous times shall come. Now, he wants us to know what these perilous times are like. And uh, he tells us, he tells us that they are characterized by certain kinds of human behavior. In these perilous seasons, he says, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a kind of religion, having a form of godliness, but one which denies its power. Now, he tells us there what perilous times will be like, and as Christians, we're meant to discern these things. And it's easily discerned in the Western world. Surely, if you have the Spirit of God in you, it's easily discerned that we are in such perilous times. Now, these sins are very much a characteristic of our age in the West, some of them particularly prominent. And of course, he tells us how we should respond to this age. 
The first thing he says is that we should make sure as God's people that we turn away from such people. Having described them, he says, and from such people turn away. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean you never talk to them, never witness to them, or anything of that kind. It means that you do not fellowship with them, that you do not share with them, that you don't become partakers of their sins. In other words, it's very much a case of them and us. We will not gather with sinners. We will not sit with them to plot and to do their sins. So there's a division from such turn away. And as well as turning away from these people, he then tells us to cleave to something else. Yes, he says, these evil men will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived themselves. But you, as well as turning away from them, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ. So, You leave these people and you cleave to the word and you cleave to those who follow the word. Now, there's a straightforward example. When you see times of peril, you're to recognize them and you shun these people and you cleave to the Lord, to his word and to his people. But there are other times in the Bible too. And I think we could sum them up as times of visitation. Times of visitation. And what that means is uh, times when God draws near to a people, either to bless them or to chasten them. God's visitations. Take, for example, when he visited the great nation of Egypt with a succession of plagues, which culminated in the death of the firstborn. These are described as God's visitations upon the land of Egypt. Again, in connection with Sodom and Gomorrah and the five cities of the plain, we're told that God visited them. In fact, we're very graphically told in the book of Genesis that God came down from heaven to see whether the cry was altogether according to the state of things in the land. Now, that's what's sometimes called an anthropomorphism. In other words, it makes God uh, man-like or human-like. We know that ultimately he doesn't need to come down. But, But it's telling us graphically that what God is doing is drawing near to the situation. He is going to visit. He's going to accomplish something. And of course he does it because he visits Sodom and Gomorrah with wrath, which came in the form of fiery sulfuric deposits that destroyed these towns. Again, we're told that when Israel groaned in Egypt in slavery, when they groaned, and I'm sure that that word groan carries the idea of a prayerful groan, a turning towards the Lord, we're told that God visited the children of Israel. And uh, many years before, you know, when things were good in Egypt, And when Joseph was dying, Joseph said, God will surely visit you. In other words, that good good old man knew what his uh, 
great-grandfather had, had said that they would be slaves in that land. And Joseph knew, however good things were, that that's what was coming. So he gave them a promise to hold on to for hundreds of years. He says that God will surely visit you and he will take you out of this land and you will carry my bones out of here. The ministry of Christ is described as a visitation amongst the people of the Jews, a visitation, a time when God drew near with gracious opportunity. Uh, when Jesus was uh, just closing his ministry, we're told that uh, he looked down from the Mount of Olives onto Jerusalem, and as he drew near to it, this was the last time he was entering it, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, that's Jerusalem, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day. Now, what does that mean? It's your day. If you had known in your day the things that make for your peace. Me, in other words. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you, and it would happen in 40 years' time, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation, the season of your visitation. In other words, God visited you, and he visited you through me, through my word, through my miracles. It was God's visitation, but you did not know the time of your visitation. And that was your fault. And the guilt will come down upon your head. So that's what I mean by times of visitation. When God draws near in providence either to bless or to judge, to chastise or to give an opportunity or anything of that kind. God coming near. As we'll see later, uh, there will be times in your life when God draws near to you. I've no doubt about that. There's a particular sense in which God visits you uh, through the preaching of the word. There's no doubt about that. But neither is there any doubt about the fact that he sometimes mixes that preaching of the word with particular providences when he squeezes you, um, when he makes life more uncomfortable for you. Just like we read in the parable in the morning about the fig tree that wasn't bringing forth fruit. And the fig tree was about to be cut down. But then the voice said, leave it. Leave it for a year till I dig around it and fertilize it. And then if it brings forth fruit, good. And if it doesn't, well, cut it down. Why should it cumber the ground? So God, God can dig around you at certain times. These are times when he comes near to you, uh, economically, um, in family in circumstances, and you recognize it's God because it's actually married with the preaching of the word. There's something about the preaching that starts to, or the reading of the word, that starts to come home to you when such providences are happening, and you know that God is coming near. You know it. Now, the sad thing is that many people don't recognize God's visitation. Take that uh, visitation of Christ uh, you did not know the time of your visitation. 
Well, did he not rebuke the Pharisees for that? I, I alluded to that in the morning. When the Pharisees just didn't take in what Christ was saying, and when they refused to, to deal with the reality and the significance of his miracles, Jesus said, well, he says, you see a cloud in the west, and you say there's going to be a shower, and there's a shower. And he says, you feel the south wind blowing, and you conclude that there's going to be hot weather. Hypocrites, he says, <clears throat> how is it that you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but that you do not discern the time? The word discern means to see through something. How is it that you don't discern the time in which you're living? How is it that you can't discern what God is doing in the world and in your nation and in your life? It should be as clear to you as the sky at night, which you can read so well. And again, Isaiah says, they do not recognize the work of the Lord, nor do they consider the operation of his hands. Now think about those words for a minute. They do not recognize the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. I suppose they would consider it if they would recognize it. But they don't recognize it, therefore they don't consider it. I mean, who is going to spiritually consider what this virus is doing unless they first of all recognize it as the work of the Lord? Only when you recognize it can you consider it. And of course, according to the Bible, it was their own fault that they didn't recognize it. It's our fault and the church's fault and the world's fault if we cannot recognize the hand of the Lord in the virus that's been unleashed. Now, <clears throat> recognizing it, well, it's strange, you know, that sometimes people can recognize God's work, but they still resist it. They don't take it to heart. Uh, when, when God visited uh, Egypt with the succession of plagues, Pharaoh came to understand that God was actually speaking in these plagues. And there are times when his heart appeared to relent. But then, you know, the plague was hardly removed when we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. So God sends another wave of chastisement upon the land. And Pharaoh recognizes, at least in part, that it must be the hand of God. And he's about to relent. God takes away, he takes away the chastisement and Pharaoh hardens his heart. There's, of course, a warning in the New Testament, and it's to all of us not to despise the Lord's chastening or to faint under it. Uh, leave fainting under it for the moment. It's not really relevant for us, but don't despise it. Don't despise it by not recognizing it. Don't despise it by considering it insignificant or simply calling it a virus or something of that kind. Recognize it as the chastening of the Lord. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking about this um, through the weekend. I was thinking that it's, it's a little bit like the way in which people heard the voice of God when it spoke from heaven during the ministry of Christ. You'll remember in the last week of Christ's ministry, um, 
Christ spoke these words, and he spoke them in public. He said, uh, Father, glorify your name. What he, what he actually said was um, that the hour is coming. He spoke of this hour of suffering, and he said, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Is that going to be my prayer, that I, that I just wouldn't have to go through with it? No, he says. It's for this very cause that I came to this hour. Therefore, let my prayer be this, and I'm paraphrasing, let my prayer be this, Father, glorify your name. Now we're told at that very moment that a voice came from heaven. And the voice from heaven said, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. I have both glorified it up till now and I will glorify your name again. Now when that voice came, Jesus said that this voice, he said, did not come because of me, but for your sakes. In other words, he's saying to the crowd around him that the reason this voice came from heaven was, was not actually to console himself, because he had every confidence at that point that the Lord would glorify him. He says, not for me, it's for your sake. It's for the benefit of the people. And that's where it becomes mysterious. Because the fact is that most of the people didn't understand what the voice said. We're told that some, when they heard it, thought it was thunder. Notice they didn't recognize the voice of God at all. They thought it was just an event, a rumbling in the sky. That's how it sounded to them. There were others that thought an angel had spoken. The inference there is that those people recognized that it was a spiritual event of some kind, an angelic event, but they didn't recognize the words either. Because if they had recognized the words, they would have known it was the Father who was speaking, because the words are unmistakably the words of the Father. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. But at least they had the discernment to recognize that it was a spiritual voice. We assume that there must have been some people present, like the disciples, who recognized not only that it was the voice of God, but they recognized what the voice of God said. They knew it was divine. They knew it was authoritative. They knew it was holy. And they knew the message. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, friends, <clears throat> it struck me that the voice of God in providence is a bit like that. Some people just see it as an event. It's just a virus. Other people will go to the extent of recognizing that God has sent it. But they've got no idea really why God has sent it or what God is actually saying through it. That's why we need to have ears to hear. When Christ spoke about the, the appearance of Elijah in the person of John the Baptist and in the ministry of John the Baptist, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
When uh, Christ sent the seven letters to the churches in the Revelation, these seven churches in uh, Asia Minor and in, in, in south, southwest Tur Turkey, all the, the letters are prefaced or, or they close with he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, that's extremely important because those seven letters, and the number seven is significant, these seven letters uh, comprehend the various conditions of the visible church in every part of the world down through the ages. So in all ages and in all generations, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Or in other words, discern which church you are. Are you Smyrna, Pergamos? Are you Ephesus? Are you Thyatira? Are you Laodicea? Hear and listen and take the message of the church to yourself. Don't just recognize it to be the voice of God. Recognize what the voice of God is saying and teaching you at the time. Now, as I mentioned a couple of Sabbaths ago, although I didn't go into it, we have a great example in the experience of the tribe of Issachar and the sons of Issachar. Uh, we're told about them, and it's in First Chronicles 12, that the sons of Issachar, now listen to this, it's a wonderful expression, the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times. Now that's wonderful. They had understanding of the times. In other words, they could interpret providence. Not, not everything in providence. We're, we're not making any great claims here. But nonetheless, they could interpret providence in the light of God's word. Now, <clears throat> that text is sometimes quoted, but I think all of us tend never to put it really into its context. The context is very revealing because it's at the precise point where David um, comes from the depths of his degradation in the land of the Philistines, and he comes back and there's a proposal to anoint him as the king in Hebron. This point in time, the house of Saul is still quite strong, and the expectation would be that the succession would pass from Saul uh, to someone in Saul's family. But the fact of the matter is that those who understood the times recognized that the the judgment of God was upon the house of Saul and that it was getting weaker and weaker and that the Lord had rejected him as a king. And in spite of David's exile and being an outlaw and all these things, it was clear to them that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And because of that, tribes from the north, some of them anyway, gravitated to the south and they identified themselves with David as the man of God. Now you'll notice that that text in First Chronicles which tells us that the men of Issachar, and they were a northern tribe belonging to Israel, that the men of Issachar didn't just have an understanding of the times and how revealing is this? The text goes on to say that they knew, therefore, what Israel ought to do. Now, now, do you notice that and how important that is? 
the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So if you were there in Israel and you were saying, well, should we stick with the house of Saul here? Or should we move to David? They knew. They, they were a people that you could come to because they had understanding of the times. And they would say, reject the house of Saul and follow the house of David. And it's remarkable today because there are still many people who will ally themselves to lost causes and to lost churches because they're big and grand or whatever they are and they cannot discern that the Lord is no longer in the midst. They think there's something special about the house of Saul even though the Lord has anathematized it. You need discernment to know what the Lord is saying in the times in which you live. And uh, the sad thing is, and Isaiah says it, uh, he says it in his own day, speaking about Jerusalem and looking at the visible church, he says, there is none among the sons whom she has brought forth to guide her. Now that's, a, that's a low condition, is it not? There is none among the sons whom she has brought forth to guide her. Well then, what is the Lord saying to us? What's he saying to our country? What's he saying to our church in the virus that's unleashed? Well, we're not without guidance. As I said, you need the spirit of prayer. You need to ask the Lord to take up the word of God in your hand as you pray and as you ask. Because as Solomon said once, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, the human condition remains the same. God's way of dealing with the human condition remains the same. That's why history is essentially cyclical in nature. What comes around goes around. Let the book of Joel guide us with this virus. Now, <clears throat> the first time we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, we noticed uh, the similarities between the particular affliction here with the army of locusts and the affliction released with the virus. Let me just um, develop that a little. I want us to consider, first of all, carefully those who are affected by the virus. I read just a couple of weeks ago uh, an article in a journal, a man who is himself from somewhere in the Middle East, and he kept describing uh, this virus as the Western flu. Now, it, it was an interesting description. Uh, uh, of course, it's sometimes called a Chinese virus and whatever because of its origin, but this man was calling it a Western flu. And we can't actually get away from the fact that it is really a Western disease. Uh, months ago, in fact, just after this thing broke out, people expected it to ravage the continent of Africa and to ravage India and other parts similar to them in terms of population and economy and so on. But that didn't happen. The fact is that Africa coped pretty well with the virus. Uh, you know as well as I do that the nations that have been particularly affected by this virus are the wealthiest 
and most privileged nations in the world. That's just a fact. They are also the nations which happen to have the most prominent place in biblical prophecy. Now, certainly biblical prophecy uh, does go far afield, at least from the standpoint of people who are living in Jerusalem. It does mention the Chinese people and so on. There is a full awareness of the largeness of the earth. But you'll notice that biblical prophecy is largely confined in the end times to what happens to those nations that are descended from the Roman Empire. Now, we saw that when we were studying the prophecy of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, the image, uh, as, it, as it reaches the bottom, comes to the Roman Empire with its ten toes, the sovereignties into which the Roman Empire shatters. And these sovereignties remain in some shape or form until the end of the world. The same was true in connection with the Roman beast in Daniel chapter 7, uh, with the ten horns which again represent the kingdoms which come, which are descended from the beast, the Roman Empire. Now these are the European sovereignties, which will have a, a prominent role to play between the first advent of Christ and the second. And who can deny that that sums up history so far? It is largely a history of Europe in terms of the progress of the world. There's a sense in which you could include perhaps the USA in that, because uh, as a nation, it is largely descended from our own. Which brings me actually to something else. Um, the, the nations that this virus has been unleashed on certainly includes the covenanted nations which are our own because we entered officially into covenant with God. And you could say by extension, the United States of America too. There are many people who say that that nation is also covenanted in its descent from the nations of the United Kingdom or at least of Great Britain. Now, this virus has come to us just as it came to them. Sometimes when God afflicted people, he actually um, omitted to afflict his own people. He kept them and he preserved them. The best known incident, of course, is in Egypt when God unleashed a succession of plagues. The land of Goshen, where the people of God dwelt, was actually spared the plagues. They didn't experience the flies or the lice or the flogs or the hail or the darkness or any of these things. God preserved his own people. But sometimes when he wanted to rebuke his own covenant people, it was unleashed on them too. I mean, God, God had made promises that he would bless the land. He would bless covenanted nations. He would preserve them from certain things unless his wrath was upon these covenanted nations for a particular reason. And the wrath unleashed has come upon the Western world of prophecy and upon the covenanted nations in particular. And we can't deny that. In fact, you could make a case for saying that we are the worst affected by them. So there is a significance in where the virus has hit the wealthy and the privileged nations, including the covenanted nations. People are surprised by that. They expected Africa to be ravaged by now. It's not. It's us. The second significant factor 
in connection with Joel and ourselves is the way in which they're affected. Now, again, I touched on this before. It's not really a case of a massive number of deaths. It's not a case of being taken into captivity. It's a case of wealth and comfort being taken away. The nations that have the biggest economies and the nations that have plunged into the idolatry of leisure and economies largely and increasingly based around leisure, these are the ones that are hurt. And they're hurt at the precise point of quality of life. The drunkards are wailing here because they don't have their regular supply of new wine. Joy is disappearing and mirth from the sons of men because they have no wine. The apple tree is withered, the palm tree, the pomegranate tree, everything has withered. The quality of life has gone. It's quite remarkable, really, that what this virus has devastated is the merrymaking and the amusement of the people. I've said before, we're all sorry for people who lose employment. But I'll tell you, it's better for the casino worker to be unemployed than to be working in his casino. It's just better. Because it is. It's better to be poor and godly than rich and ungodly. In the last analysis, do you want to be Lazarus or do you want to be the rich man? It is often a fact that God brings people to poverty in order to remember himself. Our, our brother there sitting up the back of the church frequently reminds us of that in prayer, does he not? That when uh, cupboards were empty, churches were full. And when cupboards filled, churches emptied. And the arrogance of the response is very interesting too. Because these prosperous nations, which glory in their own might and power, the response to the virus is, is almost an arrogant. Well, it is an arrogant one. It's, it's almost like, why has this happened? This ought not to happen to us. The people who should be fighting disease or famine or things like that are, are people in a third world. Not us. It's almost like, how dare the virus? And uh, there's a carping at the government all the time as though it's all the government's fault or there's an expectation that a messianic state, like a messiah, will ride or should ride to the conquest. And there's a frustration with the limitations of science, which we thought was godlike. And there's no doubt that if the vaccine appears, people will bow before the god of science again and give thanks to it for its provision. And they still won't take it to heart that God sent the virus, and neither will they take it to heart that God sent the vaccine. And if they won't take it to heart that God sent the virus, and if they won't take it to the heart to heart that God sent the vaccine, there'll be another wave. Of course there will, because that's the way God works. The great physician sent the calamity, and he's the only one who can send the cure. Why have our nations been affected? Well, I was thinking and praying over this. When did our serious national decline begin? Well, I could say, I think, that it began after the Second World War, perhaps in the mid-50s, where our culture significantly shifted 
significantly shifted and where church attendance began to decline and that process has not been reversed since then. You could also say that in the last 40 years, since the 1980s, we have sold our Sabbaths and we didn't so much sell them to um, entertainment or amusement as uh, to mammon, the god of money. Yes, there's no doubt that people began to do things on the Sabbath that they wouldn't ordinarily do. I remember the nation. <clears throat> You'll find this hard to believe if, if you're of a certain age today. But I remember when the nation was scandalized when Prince Philip played polo in 1954 or 55 on a Sabbath. The nation was scandalized. I, re I remember the shock when a football match was played, I think it was in 1974 or 75, on the Lord's Day. In fact, the Football Association themselves were quite shocked that the thing was happening. It's hard to believe now, but that's not long ago. In terms of God dealing with nations, that's microcosmic, you know. We're dealing here at the outside with a 70-year period, and then things accumulating rapidly in a 40-year period. And in terms of this greed and the Sabbath being given over to greed, nothing was allowed to stand in the way, not even the life of the unborn. Nothing is allowed to stand in the way of the economy. Every woman working, every man working, work, 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 and sacrifice everything for money, for commerce even to the point where now creation ordinances are broken. Creation ordinances are the, are the first foundational things that God appoints in the early chapters of Genesis. Let me take the best known example for now, that he creates man, male and female, to come into a physical, mental, emotional and spiritual union and to mother and father a family. That's almost seen as being an unusual view. Whereas even 10 years ago, I'm doing a disservice by saying it was mainstream. Mainstream, it was common sense everywhere. And now people would have you believe there's something wrong with you for believing that. Creation ordinances being trampled upon, not just a Sabbath, but even the role of the sexes. Is God not to express displeasure at that? Can, can we seriously expect that God would do nothing in the face of that? That he wouldn't speak to the nations that have been at the forefront of that. It's the third world nations that are turning around and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing with life? What are you doing with marriage? What are you doing with home? Do we expect to escape? the wrath of God for these things. But the Lord struck all right. He didn't just strike in 2020. There's no doubt that he struck first in 2008. The financial crash in the West is a warning. There's no doubt about that. But this year, it's more than a warning. It's a virus that's brought us to our knees. 
And the situation is so parallel to what happened in Joel's that we can't miss it, that the voice of God is to the nation and to his covenanted nations. What are you doing? I'll take your gold and your silver. I'll take the money that you've earned on the Sabbaths and I'll fritter it away on you. I'll take it back with interest. The other major consideration, in fact, the most important one of all, was the effect on the house of God. The strange thing was that other things at other times didn't affect the worship of God, but this certainly did. The grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And as I mentioned last time, joy and gladness has been cut off from the house of God. Friends, the closure of God's houses this year is enough to show God's displeasure with the nation and with the church. Uh, Calvin said this, I quoted him this morning, but he said this. He envisages the prophet saying to them, and remember the prophet here isn't coming straight away to explain the situation. He's coming to them because they're not responding to the situation. He says, it's as though the prophet said, why is it that you do not perceive that God's fire is kindled against you? Unless God had been most grievously offended, he would, he would have had some respect for his own worship and would not have allowed his own temple to be without sacrifices. Well, amen to that. Can we not perceive that the wrath of God is kindled against us? Another Puritan, I took this down some time ago and I, I, I didn't take down who, who it was. In a way, it doesn't matter anyway. Another Puritan said, that scourge must be terrible, which robs us of divine ordinances. What he says, that scourge must be a terrible one, which robs us of divine ordinances. When, and he seems to be quoting this text, when joy and gladness are cut off from the house of the Lord. No praise, no communion. And still, perhaps even the majority of churches in the land are shut. But still, so many, apparently, worldwide in the church, think this has nothing to do with God's judgment and that it's insulting to take it that way. Well, if the church doesn't take it that way, we can't expect the world to see it. If we can't agree amongst ourselves that God, well, I'm, I don't mean by that in here. I, I doubt if there is any Christian in, in here that doesn't see this as the work of the Lord. But believe me, there's plenty out there that only see it as an ordinary providence a reminder to us of frailty, a reminder to us of eternity, maybe a reminder of the day of judgment, but that's all. Nothing to do with our sin. Oh, no. Oh, not us. No, not us. But if we can't recognize it as a voice to ourselves, how on earth will the world take it as a voice to themselves? And then again, why upon the church? Should we not expect that maybe we would be like Goshen? Should, should we not expect that the churches would be like little oases here and there, uh, spared from God's wrath. Well, if we deserve to be. Certainly when Israel were spared God's wrath in the land of Goshen, 
when the plagues never touched them, there was a reason for that. And the reason for that was that they were living in the fear of the Lord. They were led by Jacob and they were led by Joseph and they were walking in the light of the Lord and therefore the Lord kept and preserved them. But in the last 70 or 40 years since the 1980s, when we sold ourselves to money and sold ourselves, sold our Sabbaths and everything, in the same time, what has the church done? It has slid into irreverence. What has happened to the worship? Irreverent, disrespectful. What has happened to the way in which people approach God? It's an insult. What has happened to the gospel message itself? Even in so-called evangelicalism, it is watered down and diluted. So why? So why should we expect that the houses of God should be exempt? Is God, in fact, not saying that much of the havoc in the land is because of our own failure in the house of God? The wonderful thing is that his chastisement is so light. And by that, like I said last time, I'm not minimizing the sufferings of the people who have been directly affected by this disease. And neither would I dream of saying, as I hope I made clear in the morning, that the reason they have suffered is because uh, they have done something particularly wrong. That's not my call. I would never dream of concluding that. But the fact of the matter is that God is chastising. And the real question is, how do we respond to that? And of course, that's uh, what we'll come to next time. But I, I, I just want to leave you with this uh, as individuals. Whatever our situation as churches or nations, we are all individuals and we can't escape our accountability to God as an individual. I don't know if you noticed in the morning, but, but when we read about that incident with the tower falling on the 18, Jesus said, don't conclude that these 18 were worse than everybody else just because the tower fell on them. But rather, he said, remember this, that if you don't repent, you will perish like them one day. In other words, something will befall you and it will be God's judgment one day. And, and, and then he gave the parable about the fig tree that just wasn't being fruitful. And he gave the image of digging around it and fertilizing so that it would become fruitful. C can I just leave you with this? The idea of God working in providence as I hope we're seeing, is really important for church, for nation, and for individuals. It's important for you to recognize that the things that you pass through in life, or to put it another way, the things that come upon you in life, are not random. They are ordered for you by the hand of God. And if he's digging around you, and if he's ruffling your nest and making your life uncomfortable, it is a visitation. And you're to understand it as a visitation from God. Not an event, but a visitation. And in a visitation like that, God is calling you. And the call is very clearly, repent, or you will perish. Word and providence together are powerful. Don't, don't deflect them away. Don't resist them. Don't put them from you when word and providence are working together in your portion. And you say, well, how do I respond then? Well, in the only way Christ wants you to respond 
What does he want from the fig tree? Fruit. Without fruit, he says, it's actually a nuisance in the ground. It's a waste of space, which is what sadly we are as individuals, unless we come to know God. Sad to say, I don't mean to be demeaning, but we're a waste of space. If, If we don't serve our creator and acknowledge him, who are we and what are we? And all God wants of you is fruit. Fruit, that's all. How do you define that? Very simple. Faith in Christ, repentance towards God. That's what he wants from you. He wants you tonight to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in the time of your visitation, even as you have in the preaching of the word, in your visitation, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Turn, repent, and you will find life. That's your response. Let's pick this up, God willing, next time. Let's call on God's name in prayer. O Lord, our God, we pray that we would learn the evils of materialism and uh, of worshipping mammon instead of God. And uh, we pray to understand the importance of that in our own lives, even remembering the rich man who fared sumptuously every day and uh, thought nothing of the man of God reduced to beggary at his gate. Uh, Lord, we ask too that we would not be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Help us to avoid the snare of entertainment, which is leading so many people away from the truth, away from solemnity, away from the realities of heaven and of hell. Help us to avoid, to the irreverence that has brought your judgment upon your own house. O Lord, you have cleansed it in the past, and doubtless you will cleanse it again. And it is better for us if we put our own hand to the task and put our own house in order before the, uh, before the Almighty sweeps these things away. We pray that uh, you would help us to speak to the world, an unbelieving world, about their condition, lying under the wrath of God. Hear us and help us to be attentive and not to mistake your voice and providence. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, If you turn to Psalm 91 in the metrical Psalms, That's on page 352. Now, although God's people are sometimes caught up in judgments for a particular reason, there is always a a special spiritual protection that will remain with the people of God. In uh, Psalm 91, verse 9, it means that they might sometimes be overwhelmed, but they will never be swept away. And it's this um, safety that's highlighted in verse 9 here. Because the Lord, who constantly my refuge is alone, 
even the Most High. Because he has made by thee thy habitation, no plague shall near thy dwelling come, no ill shall thee befall. For thee to keep in all thy ways his angels charge he shall. They in their hands shall bear thee up, still waiting or serving thee upon, lest thou at any time shouldst dash thy foot against a stone. Upon the adder thou shalt tread, and on the lion strong, thy feet on dragons trample shall, and on the lion's young. Let us hear the uh, security of Christ and the security of his people. Uh, verses 9 to 13, we'll hear them sung to the tune Strakath. stand to receive the blessing of God. <clears throat> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.